Welcome to the GTB podcast for August 2021, volume 59, number eight. My name is David Zachary. I'm GTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. And thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we talk about the content of the August issue of uh, DTB. We're currently recording this on the 13th of July. Uh, and before we discuss the August issue in depth, I thought we'd just go back to look at the editorial we published last month. Uh, James, you talked about a change in the labelling of uh, chloramphenicol eye drops that contain boron, uh, which meant that they were no longer licensed for children under two years. Do you want to give a quick recap of what you said and an update of what's happened since? Yes, this was all down to the EMA back in 2017, deciding that boron containing products should have a warning and if uh, the level of boron might reach a toxic level as suggested by them that they should not be used and this led to this rather odd situation of bit by bit all the chloramphenicol eye drops that we use in primary care for conjunctivitis quietly being removed from use in under two-year-olds and we criticised the fact that we'd heard absolutely nothing from any of the major bodies and as you're hinting at, actually, on the 7th of July, just a week ago, the MHRA did actually provide some information about their views on chloramphenicol eye drops. So my reading of it is they, uh, we don't know when, but they convened a, an expert group to look at it. What were their, I mean, why did their conclusions differ? What was, what was their take on it? Yes, I mean, it's, uh, there seem to be two elements to it. One is they've said, well, if you just take the amount of drops that you would typically use in treating a small child. Actually, we don't believe that the levels reach the toxic levels. But they also suggest that following a review of toxicology data and a calculation of daily exposure to boron from a typical dosing regime, they just say the balance between benefits and risks of chloramphenicol eye drops remains positive for children aged 0 to 2. So Whilst the EMA feel there's an issue with boron in drops for this age group, the MHRA don't. So the conclusion is you can carry on prescribing them, but they're not going to update the package information at this stage. So if you happen to get a prescription and you receive a one of the current products, it will say do not use in children under two. Correct. You've got to be careful. Yeah, so it'll say products that are currently out there on the shelves, they're not going to remove them, um, but they will have this warning about not two year olds But the MHRA is saying that's not an issue and they will be changing the SPCs and the patient leaflets to reflect that in the future. But presumably until those new ones are out, it's worth any clinician, pharmacist or whoever just advising the patient that you might read in here that it says do not use, but actually... It's okay. Absolutely right. And, I, you know, given that it's taken three years from the EMA announcement for people to change their SPC, it could be three years, I suppose, uh, following the MHRA announcement before SPCs and patient leaflets are changed. I just don't know what the ins and outs of that are, but it, I suppose it could be as long as three years. So are we claiming credit? Is it, or is this outcome caused by us or just an association? I leave that to our listeners to determine. But certainly, um, I mean, it's welcome that the, the MHRA have stepped in and, and done something. It's just interesting. It, it, you know, it took a bit of a storm before it happened. Yeah. And I did get an email from engagement at MHRA personally. So perhaps perhaps I did get a personal email rather than one that came through to everyone. Who knows? 
well, we'll take any credit. Um, okay, and while we're on the subject of the MHRA, uh, do I gather you've been looking at their latest, well, what do we call it, delivery plan, business plan, plans for the future? I mean, obviously, hot on the heels of NICE, they've, they've just published their, their plans for the future. The MHRA have also produced um, a delivery plan for the next two years, 2021 to 2023. And obviously, this comes on the need to put patients first uh, following the review of obviously harms from medicines from last year from Baroness Cumberledge. But I was just struck by once again how much they've aligned themselves with pharma. So, you know, they, I think the first paragraph talks about today's brilliant life sciences industry demands an agile and supportive regulator. And of course, you know, we do have a brilliant life sciences industry, but I want my regulator to have teeth. And I'm just worried that they're just, you know, there's a balance to be had here. And reading this plan, I, I just feel they're putting pharma too, cozying up to pharma too much. And one of the um, key recommendations that came out of that Cumberledge report that, that there should be greater involvement of patients in the regulatory process. Is that something they touch on? Absolutely. So they, the new plan talks about being more fast moving, a better business model, but delivering the recommendations of the independent uh, medicines and medical devices safety review through patient forums. And I know that, you know, you, you worry as much as I do about this because where do you find patients in these situations? And the risk is that you find them from charitables or charities and who often funds charities that focus on single issues, that's sometimes pharma. So the risk is that actually it's simply going to reflect pharma values rather than perhaps true patient values. So a bit as we, as we concluded when we looked at the NICE business plan, something that we need to need to watch and again the, the, the same issue that we more so with the mhra because obviously they get their income from fees paid by by farmers so yeah, the, the, there is a and we talked about this at the uh, isdb meeting a couple of years ago that, that when an organization relies on income from farmer there is just that dis difficult decision as to how many teeth it will have when it comes to difficult decisions Yes, and I think I think what struck me about this was that there was absolutely no mention of clinicians in this plan whatsoever. And I think clinicians are going to be the the meat in the sandwich if we're not careful, because I think pharma is going to demand ever quicker licensing, and yet we've got to maintain safety. And I think it looks to me as if post licensing verification and pharmacovigilance will fall on clinicians, like it has with valproate, like it has with a number of other. Uh, conditions so we'll be monitoring more we'll be doing more blood tests more patient counseling first to talk about the possible risks and that's going to put a lot of uh, work on to particularly primary care but also secondary care which I don't think is accounted for at all in either NICE's plans or in the MHRA's plans. Right okay well let's keep our, our watch list and uh, come back to this and see see how it develops over the next uh, few few months. Okay, uh, let's get on with this issue of DTB. We'll look at the editorial, um, talk about concurrent use of opioids and benzodiazepines, look at home blood pressure monitoring. So let's start with the editorial, uh, which discusses a scheme in England that allows hospital staff to refer patients who may need extra help with their medicines to community pharmacies. Uh, James, what are the issues? So this is a, as you say, it's a, it's called the Pharmacy Discharge Medicine Service or DMS, 
And it's a plan where um, hospitals staff who feel that patients either themselves are high risk or perhaps they've got a high risk group of medicines, hospital staff can refer these patients as they're discharged to community pharmacy who can then ensure that patients understand what they should be taking and how they should be taking it. Some of the issues that Mike, who wrote the editorial, pick, picked up seem to highlight problems with, or, or not problems, but challenges that, that they'll have to be overcome. A lot of them around collaboration between sectors, so particularly hospital, community pharmacy, and also general practice. But a lot of it seems to be about making sure that, that the information that the pharmacist gets is up to date and accurate about their medicines on discharge and they can then check what the patient thinks that they're, they're taking. Is that is that a common problem? Yeah, so Mike does mention that one of the requirements is that for each medicine there has to be an indication of why the patient is taking it. Now I've been trying to do indication-based prescribing for years and it's very hard to do because you know particularly patients on 10 or more drugs working out what each indication for each one might be can go back many years and it may be that the community pharmacy is not going to be in the best position without having access to the records to actually understand that and of course even the hospital may not be in a position to know why in particular the patient takes what they take and very often we know as, as GPs that sometimes you prescribe something as a pragmatic sort of best of best of the worst and you know it, it works for the patient and it can look a bit out you know out of kilter so it's a difficult one I think there is a risk here that I think that particularly with clinical pharmacists coming into primary care networks and a lot of them being charged with looking at discharge medication and making sure that it works there's a risk here that community pharmacy and clinical pharmacy will just duplicate activity, which would be a shame because we're all busy enough as it is. I think one of the issues, again, Mike picks up on is, is yes, that du duplication of, of problems. And then also the difficulty, if that then becomes a, a big issue in terms of workload, back to the hospital pharmacy. So we could just end up chasing information around, around the system and everything getting slowed down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can imagine you'll just spend 20 minutes on the phone to the clinical pharmacist and then the community pharmacist will be on the phone saying what's going on and you have to repeat yourself all over again. Um, so it is, it is an issue. And the other issue just for rural areas, of course, a sixth of all patients in England actually don't use a pharmacy on the whole. Um, so there is an issue about how you make sure that you're not missing out on those rural patients as well. I mean, in theory, it's, it's service sounds like a good idea. It may, and I think Mike again picks up the point that we need research to show that actually the outcome it produces the outcomes that people people want that it is actually of benefit and does reduce harm or improve um, patients' use of use of medicines. And maybe as a byproduct, I think Mike reckons that if it helps hospitals improve the quality of information on discharge, well, that might also be a good thing. Exactly. I think it'll I think he's actually very fair because there is a definite association between these sort of services and reduced hospital readmissions. So there is that association I think has been picked up, but actually understanding the causality and, and the size and effect is, is, is still to be done. But you're absolutely right. For me, I think what this demonstrates is the need for community pharmacy to be looking at the primary care networks. 
so uh, we've got a select article that we thought we'd look at in a bit more depth, uh, observational study from Canada, which was on the risks associated with using a benzodiazepine in people who are already taking an opioid. Uh, what did they find? Yeah, this is a big population cohort study where they looked at a million patients' records, community pharmacy records with data on hospitalizations and also emergency department uh, visits in Alberta. And they also looked at patients' uh, mortality who'd had an opioid prescription between 2016 and 2017. There were about 32,000 in that cohort. So this is a big study. And, and what they found basically was that concurrent use of a benzodiazepine for at least one day occurred in 17% of the cohort of patients who were hospitalised and in 35% of the cohort that died over that period. So there's a big issue of benzodiazepines plus opioids increasing your risk of hospitalisation and death. And... They, they drilled down in some of the factors that seem to increase this risk further. Was it older age? I mean, they're not they're not a surprise. Older age? No, they're not a surprise. Is... So over sixty five year olds um, were increased risk. Any duration of concurrent opioid and benzodiazepines increased your risk. Oddly enough, and the bit that I think struck me was it was particularly high in those people in the first month of doing it, which you know sometimes you think this must be a, an effect that perhaps develops over time. But actually, like a lot of drug side effects, it's often in the first few weeks or even days of starting a drug where you see that risk. I, I particularly just top of my head, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and GI bleeding classically occurs in the first week of taking it, which surprised me when I read that some years ago. So, yes, particularly morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone and tramadol were the highest risk uh, opioids in these cohorts. And obviously, as one might expect, the higher the opioid dose, the higher the risk. I mean, one thing that struck me was just the sheer number of people in this province who were taking what well, who were taking an opioid and who had had a hospital visit or an emergency department visit. I mean, it was over a million. Um, and that, I think, you know, Canada has got a, a larger opioid problem than, than, than we do. Um, but it was it was quite a shock to see those those numbers. And just bringing it back home, I mean, we've had warnings from, well, not quite home, we've had warnings from the FDA, uh, European Medicines Agency, and also our own MHRA on the risks of combinations of benzos and, and opioids. And I think the MHRA warning followed, was it a coroner's case? Yes, I can't remember, is it a section 28 letter or something? So coroners have the power to send letters to anyone they feel ought to be made aware of something and a letter was sent from a coroner to the MHRA after the death um, from a respiratory arrest, uh, an arrest of a man who was prescribed clonazepam with other drugs including methadone and that led to an MHRA warning in 2020 and as you might expect they're saying look you know be really careful when you're prescribing benzodiazepines and opioids and if you must the lowest dose possible for the shortest duration and make sure patients are made aware of this this issue with respiratory uh, distress. And this is something that's changed practice in, in general practice. Is it something people regularly audit or look at? I think the whole opioid landscape is changing rapidly. I think the concept of the old WHO pain ladder with, you know, starting on paracetamol, non-steroidals, opioids, that's broken. I think most GPs recognise that you don't want to start someone on an opioid if they've got chronic pain. There's still a big cohort of people who 
are reliant on opioids for their chronic pain, but I don't think many GPs now are starting it in anything like they used to. And I think this concept of just adding drugs on, I think we're clocking that actually the best thing we can do is remove a drug if one hasn't worked and try something else rather than just adding on and on. Okay, thank you. So important message and, and follow up from that one. Um, let's move on to our main article. Tech, one of our board members has looked at home blood pressure monitoring, a thorough, thorough review. Do you want to talk about brief highlights? And, and yes, issues? I mean, it's really timely, isn't it? Because I think we've moved lock, stock and barrel to home monitoring of blood pressure now because of the pandemic. I mean, it's quite interesting that I hadn't realised until um, Tech mentioned it, that NICE actually was the first guideline to recommend home monitoring, at least for diagnosis. And that was back in 2011. Now, in 2015, only 38 percent of patients with high blood pressure were monitoring their blood pressure in the UK. That compared with 70 percent in France, Italy and Poland. But I cannot believe that it's still at 38 percent. I mean, all our patients now monitor their own blood pressure so this is very timely it just it just goes through the evidence around home blood pressure monitoring the importance of making sure patients are using a uh, validated machine that they know how to use it the issues around what numbers of readings are required and when to take them lots of really interesting stuff here i think just plucking out one or two things i think one of the things that particularly struck me was None of these automated uh, sphygmomanometers are actually um, validated for use in atrial fibrillation, and yet we're seeing a lot more atrial fibrillation. Now, NICE actually in the 2019 guidance discourages us to use automated sphygs in AF and recommends manual BP man uh, measurement. But actually tech does talk about um, a pragmatic way to overcome this using triplicate measurements and reporting the average of these results as a way of reducing inaccuracy. So there's some really, really good evidence behind what we need to be doing, but also some really good um, pragmatic stuff in this article. It's one of those articles to cut out and keep. And also he picks up on the importance of knowing how to adjust the home readings for uh, guideline recommendations and, and what you do with the, to make the, the readings equivalent. Exactly. So it's plus five for each systolic and diastolic. He talks about how you define white coat hypertension, which obviously is when your blood pressure goes up when you see your doctor and masked hypertension, which is something which I don't think we think about very much, which is when actually your blood pressure drops when you see your GP. And there's, if there's a difference of 20 systolic or 10 diastolic between home readings and clinic readings, then you have either white coat or masked hypertension. And apparently up to 15% of the population have masked hypertension. So, you know, it is, it is important that we're picking this sort of thing up. And just going back to the device issue, um, and do you think the message of you know, the importance of buying validated machines has got through, or do people go to Amazon or wait for the latest offer from um, the middle at little, you know, where, where, do, where do people get their gadgets from? I think it's better. I think certainly three or four years ago, uh, we patients were arriving with all kinds of strange devices, you know, ones that fist onto a finger even. Um, and I think the message has definitely got out, not least because we now tend to be offering patients via websites, um, links to various uh, organisations like the British and Irish Hypertension Society, 
which have a good list of those uh, devices that work. And and also the you know the a lot of the the very best devices aren't expensive at all now. Twenty pounds will get you a device that will do the job perfectly adequately. Excellent. Right. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you can find these in all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, if you enjoy listening to us, please leave us a rating or a comment. Uh, if you disagree with anything we say or want to agree with anything we say, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at dtb at bmj.com. And you can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page if you feel sufficiently strongly to give us a, a rating. It's on the notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us next month for September's podcast. Music